I, uh, I see it's now afternoon, so good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming out to uh, listen to a couple of talks by economists. Hardly anything is more boring, I think, than economist talks, but uh, maybe you are actually students uh, majoring in economics or studying a lot of economics, and so you have a high tolerance for this kind of boredom, so I, I hope so at any event. Uh, I, I don't remember ever winning any prizes as a uh, public speaker, so <laughs> I can't claim to be above average uh, for economists in this department. But uh, what, I, what I have done is spent uh, a lot of my career studying uh, issues that have some bearing on the troubles that we've got into in the past four years in this country. And... Um, uh, in fact, most of my research has, uh, has been about economic history. So, so when uh, things started to go, go south, pretty obviously, in 2008 in the summer, and you could see panic almost palpably growing. Uh, if you watch any financial programs on television, uh, the, uh, the normally hysterical uh, announcers and talking heads were becoming even more hysterical and screaming and shouting about how er everything was uh, totally going to hell, uh, I began to wonder when my colleagues in economics who really know about these things were going to start to comment because it seemed to me that a lot of nonsense was being said. And, uh, and they weren't. You know, I, I didn't see that the people I thought were authoritative on this matter were coming forward to try to clarify it and particularly coming forward to allay some of this visible panic. And uh, that was important. It should have been done, because if it had been done, uh, the reactions would have been different. If the reactions had been different, we would probably be better off today. It's almost always a bad deal to react in fear and panic to anything. People don't think straight. They don't think wisely. They don't consider the various aspects of a problem. When they're scared to death and they're convinced they have to do something now, that's the worst possible decision-making setup. And that was precisely the one in which the government began to react to the, this situation, in, uh, particularly in September and October 2008, and to some extent for a number of months afterward or even uh, years afterward. So this has been a kind of case study in bad policy making, uh, driven in large part by fear and unwise, hasty decision making. Uh, I kept waiting for the experts to <laughs> say what needed to be said, and, and when I didn't see that they were doing it, I started writing about this matter, and, uh, and, and now I've been diverted from my normal work <laughs> for about four years. Uh, because of all the attention that uh, I've given to, to the current recession and, and uh, problems related to it. So that's what I'm going to uh, talk to you about briefly today. You'll see that uh, the slides I'm giving uh, were created originally uh, uh, for a talk that made explicit uh, comparisons between the Great Depression of the 1930s and, and the past four years. 
And uh, the, re the reason I've done that uh, is that a lot of people have been interested in that. They, there have been many, many allusions and you know, references to what happened in the Great Depression and what was done correctly that we should do again or what was done wrong that time, which we should not do this time. And so it, it is a natural thing for people to make reference to, but uh, sometimes these comparisons are not actually helpful. They're misleading and... Uh, so I've tried to, to avoid that because uh, the depression is something I a actually had some authority to speak about uh, when, when these events began to happen. Uh, I'll just fly briefly through some of the similarities here uh, in these two uh, uh, busts, if you like. Uh, both of them were uh, uh, preceded by similar kinds of lead-up events, uh, particularly mon monetary ease, uh, the Federal Reserve was operating. It was created in 1913, but uh, World War I uh, came along immediately, and it, it basically exercised its powers during the war to assist the Treasury of the United States in financing the war effort. And so it wasn't until after World War I that the Fed began to operate in, in any sense uh, for the reasons for which it had been created. <laughs> and so we began to see how, how it was going to work, how it was going to use its powers. And one of the things it did was uh, try, uh, try to help the British when they were trying to resume the, the, the backing of the pound sterling with gold and go back to the gold standard, which they did in 1925 uh, at, at a wrong exchange rate because they went back to the pre-war exchange rate when the actual value of the pound was no longer that great. And uh, so that caused problems for them. But uh, at all events, the people who ran the Fed, uh, particularly the leading figure at that time, who was a man named Benjamin Strong, who was the head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. In those days, the individual banks were much more important than the system. And the New York Bank has always been the most important of all the regional Feds. Uh, Benjamin Strong was very close to the governor of the Bank of England, and so they, they agreed about how the United States could help the British get back uh, uh, to the gold standard at the old pre-war rate of exchange. And one of the things that involved was making money easy in the United States so that interest rates would be lower here, so there would be less incentive for the British to move money from Britain and invest it in the U.S., Right? That was the connection. Well, they did that, and no doubt that did help the British a little bit in making their transition, even though they made it badly. Uh, but it had other effects. You see, when you do one, you can never do just one thing in economic policy. When you try to uh, change some variable in the economy in order to achieve objective A, it turns out that you've had an effect on B, C, and D. Right? And so uh, what happened here was that in trying to make interest rates lower in the United States as, as an aid to the British resumption of convertibility, uh, we made interest rates lower than they would have been without this Fed action, and that created an incentive, as uh, Professor Horowitz was explaining, for people to undertake more long-term <clears throat> investment projects than they otherwise would have undertaken. If you just do your basic calculations of present values, you can prove this to yourself with a calculator in a few minutes of effort, that long-term investments, present values are much more sensitive to changes in the rate of interest 
than short-term investments present values are. Okay? So if you go from using a rate of discount to create your present values, change it by one half a percent, that'll have a much bigger proportional effect on the present value of a long-term stream of income than on a short-term stream of income. That, that, that's why the Austrian analysis works. You, you don't have to believe anything about Austrian economics to believe this. This is just arithmetic. So at all events, the, uh, the monetary policy was easy. It stimulated a construction boom in housing. Uh, real estate uh, uh, boom both in residences and in commercial building. There was an office building boom. There was a big boom in building in Florida, particularly with the development of coastal areas that people were now able to, to buy and use as getaway homes because the automobile had come into widespread use recently in the United States. And so a lot of things contributed to this real estate boom, but, but monetary ease was one of the important conditions behind it. And whenever you have uh, uh, easy money and real estate and related booms, uh, there's always financial gimmicks. And uh, in that case, you had something called real estate bonds, which were cooked up. And that meant that real estate developers would borrow money, and the security, what was the security for the bonds they sold? It was the real estate they were developing. <laughs> they didn't really have any collateral they put up. You know, normally when you uh, get a loan, you have to have collateral in case you don't keep your promise. The lender's got some asset to seize instead of getting your promised payments. In this case, they didn't really have any separate collateral. All they had was their dream that this development was going to turn out to be worth something. And a lot of them went bust in 1926-7. Uh, the collateral was more or less worthless, utterly worthless in some cases. So these, these were just really wretched financial instruments. Uh, they were gimmicks. They were ways to, to get rich quick. Uh, and holding companies also came into great use. Uh, holding companies are companies that don't own brick and mortar. They don't own machines. Uh, they don't produce goods and services. Uh, the, what they own is uh, other companies. They own shares in other companies. And then you can have higher order holding companies that own shares in holding companies. <laughs> And by the end of the 1920s, you had the, this pyramid being built up sometimes at four levels with holding companies that hold holding companies that hold holding companies that hold operating companies. Now, why would anybody do that? And the answer is that by doing this, a very small amount of investment can control an enormous amount of assets at the bottom. And that means if the value goes up at the bottom, the percentage gain in profit at the top is huge. <laughs> That's why they do it. Leverage. Now, financial gimmicks almost always rely on leverage. The ones recently have been the same in that sense. Okay? So holding companies became all the rage in the 20s. The, the trouble is it works in reverse. If the companies at the bottom start losing profitability, <laughs> then the sh shares, their shares become less valuable, so the company that holds their shares becomes less valuable, and it works its way up. And a very small change in the value of the lower-level operating companies turns out to be enough to wipe out all the value of the capital invested at the top. 
So uh, when the bust came in 1929, the stock market, not only did all stocks fall in value tremendously, by 1932 they'd fallen about 80% on average. But if you look at holding companies, uh, almost all the holding companies became worth zero because their leverage worked against them and wiped them out. Uh, in our recent uh, events here, we had the easy money that uh, Professor Horowitz uh, illustrated with showing you the real interest rate becoming negative for three, three and a half years. Uh, real estate boom, construction boom, uh, and you know, it's, real estate is a big sector of the economy, and a lot of things are connected with it. A lot of kinds of finances, you know, there are all these brokerages and real estate agents. And, and then when housing is built new, you got all these people that supply appliances and what have you that go, furniture that go into the houses. So uh, historically in the U.S. economy, real estate booms have been big drivers of the whole cyclical movement of the economy. And uh, that's still, still the case uh, recently. Of course, we had all this mortgage-related uh, securities uh, and something called credit default swaps, which were uh, basically ways of, uh, uh, of ensuring that uh, people that promised to, 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 to pay on bonds they sold, some kind of bonds, uh, if they didn't repay, you would get your money from the insurer. Uh, they, they weren't called insurance, though, because the whole idea of creating them was to avoid all the regulations on the insurance industry. So they created the, this, this gimmicky way of, uh, of buying and selling assets, which amounted to insurance, but which was not called insurance. When, when the bust came, and as Steve explained, it will come if you artificially induce a boom by pushing interest rates below market levels, then you will have a bust associated with that. Now, you won't necessarily see it if you didn't say push them very far below where they would have been. The effect won't be very big, and it may be swamped by other things happening at the time. But the partial effect, that is the effect of that one change in itself, will always be the one we're telling you here. It will always be that you have more long-term investment than you would have otherwise, okay? other things being equal. Now, if you use monetary policy and shove interest rates far below market levels, then you can expect to have a big noticeable effect, and that's what we've had in this case, uh, because the monetary policy was very bad, and by the way, it wasn't bad just in this country. You had similar events taking place in many parts of the world. When I was in uh, Turkey a couple years ago, I was driving along the Aegean coast, beautiful place, and I came to a spot as I was driving along, actually I was on a bus, <laughs> and uh, I look out and I see all of these uh, buildings, you know, like 20-story apartment buildings, condos is actually what they were, but they're all unfinished. And some of them had people living in the first floor, the second floor, <laughs> so they, they'd occupied some of the units, but some of them were totally empty. Some were only very slightly occupied. 
and this went on for several miles. I have no idea how many of these buildings there are. Just huge buildings. And you know, at some point in the early part of that decade, developers had said, you know, look how great everything is booming along. We'll, we'll build these condos, and, and the Germans will come with all their money, and, and uh, the French will come, and the Brits will come, and we'll make a fortune off selling condos to them. So they threw up at great expense just, I don't know, 80, 100 of these huge buildings in a three-mile stretch. Well, before they could get finished, <laughs> uh, the bust came. Yeah. They lost their financing. They couldn't pay back as promised on the money they had borrowed to put these projects into, in, 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 into operation. And so they abandoned them. They abandoned them. Sometimes a little bit was left. Sometimes they abandoned the whole building. Okay. So this was to me like, this is like a, a living graveyard of Austrian economics <laughs> displayed before my eyes here to show exactly how the boom-bust cycle works, and particularly with regard to real estate. So we, we had crashes, panics in both cases. In September 2008, we had full-fledged hysteria. In October 29, we had full-fledged hysteria. Uh, and then we had, in both cases, some rebound. Okay? Uh, the, the thing is, that everybody knows there was a great stock market crash in 1929, but a lot of people don't realize that it only lasted for a couple of months. And then it stopped. And stock prices started going back up again. In fact, they went up for about six or seven months. And that's what later came to be known as a sucker's rally. Because a lot of people decided, oh, well, you know, this trouble is over. That's what all the experts were telling them. Not just President Hoover. He was saying, you know, we're fundamentally sound. But Irving Fisher, the greatest American economist of all time, a man who would put his own money where his mouth was, he, he, he'd become a millionaire as an entrepreneur, an investor. He, so he wasn't just a great economist. He actually went out there and proved that he knew what he was talking about. Well, Irving said, everything is fine. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. Don't panic. Get your money back in the market. Uh, it's going to come back. And a bunch of people did. And then, of course, they got wiped out, as I say. Eventually, it ended up 80% or more lower than it had been at the peak in 1929. So they had been suckers, and, and, if, and if it makes you feel any better, Irving Fisher went broke. <laughs> it was kind of a tragic story in some ways. But uh, we've had a kind of suckers rally here, uh, or it may not be. We don't know yet. Okay? One thing about economists is that no matter what they tell you, they're not prophets. They don't really know the future. If economists know anything, it's propositions of the form, if A, then B, given C. Okay? <laughs> but we can't guarantee that C is going to happen. Okay? C are all the conditions in which, if A, then B. All science is like that. You know? It's the same in physics. You do a experiment, you, you know, say there's a relationship between temperature and pressure in a closed vessel. Uh, given, given other conditions unchanging. Uh, 
volume. You gotta hold the volume constant. If you don't hold the volume of the vessel constant, then you won't have this relationship. Okay? So, same here. Uh, in this case, we had the real output of the economy fall about 30% by the time it stopped falling in the early part of 1933. So this thing lasted almost four years. Uh, not constantly falling, but each little rebound was slight, and it would fall further, and it made its way down very, very far, uh, creating all kinds of havoc along the way, uh, including the 10,000 banks failing that Steve mentioned. Okay? Uh, recently, we've had a decline in real output of about 5% during the, the period when real output was declining from basically the beginning of 2008 to um, the second quarter of 2009. And then after that, we've had some improvement, but not very rapid improvement. And the improvement in the labor market has been much less, much slower. Real output got back where it had been before uh, a year or more ago, but there's still uh, about 5 million people uh, less in private employment today than there were uh, in 2007. So uh, of the 8 million people who lost jobs in private employment during the decline, uh, only three-eighths of that loss has been recouped. So there's a, there's a long way to go, and that's, I agree with what Steve said, that this is, this is not a, a recession that's over in any uh, way you'd want to write home about. Okay? This, uh, this illustrates the decline in real... Uh, GDP uh, during the early 30s. Uh, it's in logs, so you can't read the, the amounts off of that, but uh, you can see that uh, uh, it took more than a decade to get back to where it had been uh, before, and uh, when it did get back to where it had been before, uh, it was still far below its trend line. Here's the growth trend of the economy over the long haul for this period, and you can see that even in 1940, uh, 41 here, uh, when we've got back up to where we were, we're not back to where the economy would have been if it had grown along its trend growth. So uh, the, the re recovery was not complete at the time the war economy came along. And most economists will then say the war got the economy out of depression. And what they're thinking about is how the line shoots up. In fact, it shoots above the growth trend which is kind of bizarre when you think about it because the growth trend is, is supposed to represent the economy's production potential being fully realized. Well, how can you produce more than your potential? <laughs> well, the short answer is you can't, uh, and that's an illusion. It's a statistical illusion for all kinds of reasons I won't uh, talk about today, but if you're interested, uh, my book, uh, Depression, War, and Cold War, explains in excruciating detail <laughs> what was going on there. Okay, it's a statistical artifact. But at all events, it wasn't until after the war that things really recovered in a true sense. Okay? It's not much of a recovery. You can't eat hand grenades. So if you're producing a lot of those, yeah, you can still be depressed in all the usual ways. And that's what happened during the war. Okay? <laughs> 
Here's our recent experience. You can see the, the kind of plateau reached in late 2007, early 2008. Then the steep decline uh, in the third quarter uh, of 2008 especially. Uh, and then it bottoms out in the second quarter of 2009, starts coming back and uh, is uh, pretty much back to where it was before. Uh, I, I actually have the numbers here in constant $2,005, so, so you can read straight off of that where we are. Here's our unemployment experience recently. Uh, and as I said, we haven't had the same kind of recovery there. Uh, recently, it's come down to 8 point, what was the last, 8.3, 2, okay. So it's fallen about a point, finally. Uh, although, no, two points from the high. It got over 10 for a little while. So unemployment rates have come down, but one of the reasons they've come down is that many people have left the labor market. So uh, if you look not at the unemployment rate, but as I was doing a minute ago, talk about how many people are employed, what you find is we're still 5 million people short of um, recovery in that sense. And, of course, that, that, again, is not where we should be. We should have had growth in employment. We shouldn't be just getting back to where we were in 2007 uh, for a recovery. We should have considerably more employment now. And in fact, if you go back further in time, what you find is that private employment today in our economy is about a million persons less than it was in the year 2000. So we've got more than a decade here in which private employment has not increased at all. It's sometimes what people call a lost decade. And unless the economy starts to, to operate much better, the growth picks up and the increase in, of employment picks up, we're going to be stuck in a very uh, sick economic situation for a long time. And, and I actually fear that that's, that's what's going to happen. Um, here you see the employment situation when you look at the hours worked data. You see the amount of work being done uh, uh, falling during the bust and then getting kind of stuck with a lot of variations at a much lower level. And it's hard to see now where it's uh, going to go. Now, historically, uh, there, there were lots of fluctuations in the U.S. economy. So there, there wasn't anything odd about there being fluctuations. There's never anything odd about the fact that growth will stop for a while or turn negative. Uh, that's happened many, many times in the past. Mm -hmm. But these fluctuations rarely uh, are long-lived or severe. Okay? So historically, what tended to be the case is the, the American economy fluctuated. Uh, it did that for a lot of reasons. Some of them may be intrinsic to the way the economy was developing, but certainly many of them we can trace to government policies of various kinds, especially policies involving money and banking, which distorted credit conditions and interest rates and caused the kind of problems that Professor Horowitz described. Okay? You can track those way back into the past, almost 200 years uh, ago. We, we, we can identify those kinds of 
of events in the economy. So uh, these things would happen, but in the past, uh, even though the government was monkeying with money and credit conditions in various ways, uh, we didn't have a central bank, really. Uh, we, we, we had something that was sort of a proto-central bank uh, for a little while, uh, the first bank of the United States between 1791 and 1811, and then it was allowed to expire, and then it was recreated in, in 1816 for another 20-year period, and then it was allowed to expire because of the uh, hostility of the Jacksonians to this bank, which they viewed as the work of the devil and, and the plutocrats, who were pretty much the same thing for them. Okay? So they killed the second bank of the United States, and after that we didn't have a central bank until the Fed was created in 1913. So in, in the 19th century, the, these ebbs and flows were, 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 were not subject to a central bank action uh, uh, normally, and they, and they also were not subject to any kind of uh, attempt on the part of the government through the Treasury uh, to act in ways that the government has been trying to act since 1929 in this country. If you look, for example, at the, at the Depression of 1920-21, what you see there is that there were people calling for the government to intervene to help out particularly farmers and uh, unemployed workers and, uh, and various others, including always the bankers, you know, whenever they start to fail, they always look to the state to save them. And, and, and uh, President Harding was an old school guy. He said, this isn't the government's place. You know, he said, if, if we try to help you all, we'll make matters worse. So the best thing we can do is just let things sort themselves out. So basically, the Treasury did nothing to reverse the decline. It was a pretty substantial decline in real G GDP. Very brief. It only declined for a year or so. It, it immediately recovered. And within another year and a half or so, it had completely gone. <laughs> Harding, Harding was exactly right. By doing nothing, he had allowed the adjustments to be made. Uh, people had rearranged their bad investments. They had written off things. They'd had bankruptcies. They had rearranged their affairs. And they had gone back to work. And so by 1923, the unemployment rate is down, I think at that point it was down around 3 3%. And normally after that in the 20s, it stayed in that, that range, 3 4 5%, never more than that. That was kind of historically viewed as a normal kind of unemployment rate. So... There we were, but unfortunately, people were, were learning. Economists were learning, they thought, uh, about how the economy could be controlled for everybody's betterment. And one of the people who really believed in this kind of action was Herbert Hoover. You may have heard Hoover portrayed as some kind of a, a dinosaur, you know, like a reactionary, a man who, 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 who at best fiddled while Rome burned. It's all false. This is total crap. It's the product of histor historians who loved Roosevelt, and in order to make him look great, had to make Hoover look wrong. So when Hoover did the very kinds of things that were done during the New Deal, it was ignored or minimized, 
And Hoover was held up as a guy who refused to take the actions that needed to be done uh, in, in, when the Depression began. But Hoover, in fact, did far more than any president had ever done before to counteract that decline. And that was a problem. Okay? Because what happens is that when the government engages itself in countercyclical activity during a bust, its actions all have one thing in common, which is that they either slow down or completely eliminate the kinds of readjustments that are necessary to get back to a healthy economy. Okay? If you've invested in a thousand condos on the coast of Turkey, the answer to your problem is not rebuild another thousand condos on the coast of Turkey. That was a mistake. If some bank comes along and gives you a bundle of money to go back and rebuild the condos, they're just pouring good money after bad. Okay? If your business has made the wrong kinds of investments, your bank has made the wrong kind of loans, it's made mistakes because it was suckered in by green lights policymakers put up, <laughs> it won't do any good to keep the lights turned on green. The effect of that is to keep people crashing into bad investments, which Austrians call malinvestments. Okay. So what happens when the government intervenes? It happened in the New Deal. That's why the recovery was never complete for the first time in history. Uh, after a long, long period, and it's what, what has happened in this episode as well, recently, that we've had a, a tremendous amount of government response. Government has ridden to the rescue. But when government rides to the rescue, it's going to ride in and do what politicians find best. And what they find best is to help out incumbents. Okay? People who are in trouble, they can help make them beholden for that help, get their campaign contributions, get their cash in a plain brown wrapper, you know, get whatever it is that politicians are trading with other people to do their business as politicians. Okay? Their business is not really to make the economy work because they have no idea how to do that. They know how to do one thing how to get elected to office and then appoint people that will be friendly to the people who help them get elected to office. So if you look to these guys to be scientific managers of the business cycle, you're looking in absolutely the wrong place. But that's where people have looked because that became the orthodoxy from the 1930s onward, that the government could and should act all the time. It was written into law in 1946 in the Employment Act. It could and should all the time use its powers uh, to maintain maximum employment production uh, and uh, purchasing power. So I don't have time to recite everything that was done during the Roosevelt administration, but. Uh, it had every, every, every part of the economy was affected in a major way. Uh, wage interferences, 
big increases in tariffs in 1930, creation of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which was this gigantic government agency to bail out banks, insurance companies, and railroads, read incumbents in trouble, okay? particularly those with political connections. Okay? Where have you heard that recently? Uh, eventually, attempts to control all of industry by cartelizing every industry in the in the country in the National Industrial Recovery Act, attempts to quasi-cartelize all of American agriculture under the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and it just goes on and on and on. There are hundreds of measures taken uh, under Roosevelt and, uh, as I said, under Hoover uh, before that that amounted to interferences in the price system, interferences in that system which people rely on to signal them where they can serve their interests best. Okay. Prices go up. That tells people to sell that thing. Try to sell more. Make more available. Prices go down. That tells people sell, try to sell less. And it works on the other side for demanders. Prices go up. Don't try to get so much. Prices go down. Okay, now you can afford some more. Okay. So these signals are being established in a free market by people's voluntarily revealing their valuations by their actions in buying and selling at different terms. They need that information. That's how they tell the truth in a way that will contribute to something that is readable by all the actors in the economy, the price. Okay? We can't know about what's happening in, in a million different places in the economy, but we can know what the price of something is and whether it's higher than it was yesterday or lower than it was yesterday. And from that price information, we can make decisions that allow us to succeed. But if we're reacting to prices that don't tell the truth because they're not based on people's actual valuations, but based on various interferences in the price system by politicians, then we just get chaos. It's kind of a miracle things go as well as they do in the face of all this. Lately, we had immediately this push to, to bail people out in the TARP program. Uh, TARP, you know, you'll remember Troubled Assets, uh, Troubled Asset re, re, relief, relief Program. Okay. And what they were going to do, because the banks and other lenders had in acquired so many crappy loans, eh? it lent money to people who obviously weren't going to be able to repay as promised, uh, the, the, the Treasury was just going to go out and buy all these crappy notes. And furthermore, it was going to buy them for a lot more than they were worth, because at that time, people were so frightened, they, they were more or less saying they won't buy these things at all. Now, that was obviously not a sustainable price because most most of these people, you know, 90% of the mortgages get, got paid. So if you had a package of mortgages, to say it at a zero value was, was stupid. Okay? But people were so confused in the fall of 2008 and frightened that they just sort of ran away from a lot of these, uh, these newfangled kinds of securities that had been dreamed up during the boom. And as a result, uh, the Treasury decided that it would buy them, but then when it tr tried to decide how much it would pay for them, 
<laughs> and it was clear they were going to have to be paying much more than their current market value, which verged on zero sometimes, uh, to, to be helpful to the holders. They said, no, we won't do that at all. Forget buying crappy securities. We will just invest in all these banks. We'll buy preferred shares. Yeah, we'll become part owners of these things, and that'll help them out. That'll give them capital they don't have. So that's what they did instead through the TARP program. And if you didn't want to be involved and you were a big bank, they made you be involved. The Secretary of the Treasury called you in and browbeat you and said, you damn sure better get involved in this <laughs> or you'll wish you had. Okay. Well, that's a situation like, you know, I offer a banker cannot refuse when the Secretary of the Treasury issues that kind of a threat against him. So they went along. And then at the same time the Treasury was running the TARP program, uh, the Fed leapt in with all four feet and started buying every kind of asset imaginable before the Fed portfolio had been virtually entirely one kind of asset. It had been U.S. government bonds, period. That was the asset they owned. And they conducted monetary policy by buying and selling uh, these uh, bonds in the open market and thereby affecting interest rates. Okay? So, but now what they've done is that they've bought everything. They've bought you know, every kind of mortgage-backed security that had been dreamed up. Uh, they bought uh, over a uh, trillion dollars from Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie, by 2008, owned more than, more than half of all the residential mortgages outstanding in the United States. And since the ones that had come into existence in recent years were so often bad loans to people who never had any chance to repay, a lot of them had much reduced value or no value in some cases. So, so the Fed says, we don't care. We'll buy them. Pay you top dollar. Here, take this, take this money. So the banks, yeah, they greatly preferred taking face value deposits at the Fed to holding these securities that were sure going to be losers for them. So they made this swap, basically, and, and the Fed became, in effect, a big investor in crappy securities. Still is. Still holding these things. Now, they, originally, they thought the plan would be, as they matured, they would work down. You know, the, the volume they held would fall. But, you know, things weren't going well enough, so they didn't want to let that happen. So they didn't. And not only that, but the government and the Fed have continued to prop up lenders whose business is to turn on green lights in the traffic system to make it look as if uh, banks and other institutions are solvent when they're actually bankrupt. And if they valued their assets correctly, we would see that they're bankrupt. They would have to go out of business. Okay? or just to help people out, uh, to keep you know, the demand for housing up enough that at least some of the real estate dealers and furniture manufacturers and other people who have a stake in this are kept going to some extent. There's been a huge fall, of course. So they haven't been able to prevent what's happened, uh, but they've certainly slowed it down and kept it from being as complete as it should have been if the economy were going to restructure itself and get back into a healthy situation. 
Okay? Uh, nobody likes to go bankrupt, but, <clears throat> but you know, you need to remember when a business goes bankrupt, it doesn't evaporate. It doesn't just disappear from the face of the earth. Any assets it has that have value are they're, they're sold off to new owners, you know. Somebody acquires these assets that have value. And then if they're worth operating in some way, they, they're still operated. So when, you know, when, when General Motors finally did go bankrupt, uh, although it did so with all kinds of special dispensations and assistance from the Treasury and, and basi basically closing the eyes to existing bankruptcy law, uh, when, when GM went bankrupt, it, all its factories didn't disappear. There they sat, full of machinery. Huh? So somebody, whether it was GM, which it turned out to be, but you know, if it, GM had gone out of existence, somebody would have bought those turret lathes and all that, that steel that was in the GM warehouses and so forth. And they would have put it to use in ways that promised to yield profits for them. But all of these interventions got in the way of that kind of economically rational and sensible uh, reallocation of resources in the economy, which had been badly misdirected as a result of policies of the government during the boom. Okay? We had this liquidity explosion that, uh, that Steve illustrated, uh, where the Fed's balance sheet doubled and then, and then tripled again. Uh, we had the stimulus bills. We've had loans and guarantees of every imaginable sort. We've had these government takeovers of AIG, a gigantic insurance company uh, that was heavily involved in these credit default swaps. Uh, that's why they took it over, uh, because if it went belly up, then some banks that are very cozy with the Treasury and uh, the government in general were going to have big trouble. So they had to be helped. And, uh, and you can just track this through. If you look at who got help and who didn't get help, it's almost entirely a political measure. Okay? If you look at these stimulus spending bills, for example, uh, this is like then where's the money being spent for stimulus? It's not just being equally spread across everybody. It's not like your check you want people <laughs> to all receive in equal amounts. Uh, at, not at all. It's being put to, to firms and sectors where the decision makers expect to get political reward for what they're doing. You know, the, the Obama administration knows that there's no point get helping certain people. They're never going to get their vote. <laughs> and the Bush administration understood the same thing. There's no point helping certain people particularly because they're never going to get their vote. And that's how decisions are made in politics. So that's how they've been made for the past four years, of course. And uh, it's always represented in a very disinterested way. But, you know, you. You'd be nuts to, you know, invite a viper to live in your home saying, you know, the viper says that he's going to be really nice. Vipers will be vipers, you know. You'll end up getting killed when they strike. If you believe politicians when they come forward and tell you, we're just trying to help out, <laughs> you're the kind of person that would invite a viper into your home. They're going to be politicians. That's what they do. That's what they are. That's only thing they know how to do. You can't fault the viper. He's a viper. You can't fault the politician. 
You can only fault people who allowed politicians to have authority and discretion <laughs> over important matters in your life. And if you do that, then you damn sure better watch out where you step. And that viper may get you. Okay? All right. Uh, why don't I stop here and uh, entertain your questions, and then after I take a few, we'll, we'll both take some uh, together. So the floor is open. Yes, ma'am. During the current crisis, what the Fed has done has not worked. Um, do you have any suggestions? I know someone else has asked a question. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you have any suggestions as to what the Fed should have done? Uh, the, the, most important, the most important thing they should have done was, was never have a really bad policy between 2001 and 2006. Because once they had done that, the goose was cooked, okay? Now, given that they've done it, and we can't do anything about it now, 2008 comes along and we have this debacle, and then the question is, what should they do? You know, they can't rewrite history. What should they do now? And uh, my answer is somewhat similar to Steve's. Uh, in the 19th century, this man, Walter Badgett, who wrote probably the most famous book on banking, and uh, his advice to bankers was, in a crisis, the, um, the authorities uh, should lend uh, on good collateral, on good collateral at high interest rates to banks that have uh, liquidity problems. Okay? Uh, because everybody understood in a fractional reserve banking system, these systems are fragile. They're vulnerable. If people panic and they all go try to get their money out at once, then everybody gets in trouble. It creates a cascade effect, spillovers. Okay? So to prevent that, uh, uh, Badgett said, get them through their liquidity crisis, give them enough cash, lend it to them at a high interest rate uh, with good collateral, if they don't have collateral to put up, well, they've already proven to you they, they're not credit worthy. So don't give them anything to let them go broke. But if they can put up good collateral, lend to them at a high interest rate, that'll get them through the crisis. When their depositors come in demanding their deposits, they'll have cash they can give them, and the panic will subside. Okay? Well, there's actually a lot of wisdom there, <laughs> practical wisdom. Uh, if you're living in a world with fractional banking and all these interferences and so forth, you know these troubles are going to arise. When they do, what's the best thing you can do? This is not like the second best. This is like the 14th best policy, but you've already screwed up on 1 through 13. So now what you do is in 2008, if, if, if a bank can come in and give you good collateral, you say, okay, I'm going to lend you this. Here's the interest rate. It's not going to be cheap. But what the Fed did instead was basically throw money at these people, not with good collateral, with terrible collateral or none, uh, and not just banks, at every kind of lender you can think of. People that were, that were behind, you know, like finance companies that finance car purchases, people that finance student loans, uh, people that finance revolving credit in department stores, they all got some kind of bailout. The, the Fed came in and just spewed money in every which direction. 
uh, amazing. I mean, the amounts here, I mean, if you had told me this story uh, back any time before 2007, if you said, okay, Higgs, here's what's going to happen in 2008 and 9, and I got the numbers, I just said, you're nuts. Never could happen. Never could happen. They'd never do that. That's crazy. But that's what they did. What seemed previously absolutely nutso is exactly what the Fed's policy was. They, they lent money right and left to one and all. They, 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 they took over the commercial paper market, for example, because people were saying, they were saying out in the street talking to reporters, you couldn't sell commercial paper. That wasn't true. Commercial paper continued to be sold. Yeah, you had to pay a higher interest rate. But what had happened is that in the midst of all this panic, people who just didn't want to pay 1% or 2% more for their borrowing had gone out and said, you've got to help us. And they got the help they wanted. So the market operates with price changes. <laughs> in situations like this, interest rates should rise. Okay? They should rise. That's what financial stringency is all about. But we've got policymaking in this country that operates on the premise that interest rates should never rise, and in fact, if they can be kept at virtually zero all the time, that is paradise on earth. <laughs> so, you know, if, if that's like the Austrian's nightmare. You're going to misallocate resources chronically in that kind of situation. And they've kept that situation alive now. So, so I, if I had my druthers, I would have said, yeah, lend to people that deserve the loans, good terms, good collateral, period. Don't do anything more. And how that What that would have done was that it would have meant that a lot of institutions that were actually insolvent would have gone bankrupt. Their assets would have been sold off to new owners. Uh, what we have instead is a lot of institutions that are bankrupt, but they were never seen to be bankrupt. They keep operating. But if a bank knows it's bankrupt, they, they're, they're not unaware. <laughs> the guys at Bank of America, they're fully aware that that bank is broke. Okay? But what do they do when they know they're broke? They, they do everything they can to keep from making situation worse by making a bad loan. So now, whereas three, four years ago, they were handing money out to anybody with a pulse, now, when I try to re refinance a mortgage with them a year ago, they put me through a ringer like I've never seen in my life. The banks and other lenders are so careful now. They're all scared to death. They're all frightened because many of them know they're bankrupt. And that's why, even though the Fed put all that money into the reserves, it didn't have the effect of leading to an enormous expansion of the money stock because they just held the reserves. <coughs> Before this trouble started in 2007, excess reserves in the U.S. banking system were about $2 billion. $2 billion. Banks didn't want to hold reserves that weren't earning, so they kept them down to virtually zero. So they went from $2 billion to well over a trillion dollars in about a year and a half. Who could have believed they would sit on this? And the reason they're sitting on it is because of fear and because the recovery has been so poor, so incomplete, and they're still afraid. So the idea of the Bernanke and company was, 
you know, flood them with reserves, and they will do the things that get the economy moving. The Fed's a great believer in the kind of credit theory of vitality. <laughs> if credit is moving, then all is well, uh, which is kind of a strange theory when you think about it for long at all, but that's the way they make decisions. So in, tr- in their attempt to keep credit moving, they flooded these institutions with the ability to issue credit, but they won't issue it. They just won't. And so the effect that the Fed wants to see is not there. And when Bernanke is asked about this, he, he, he quite honestly, I think, says, we just don't understand why the economy is acting the way it is. And I, I believe him. I think he doesn't understand. More questions? Yeah, Ryan. So after a couple of years of trying to keep it secret, the Fed reveals that it loaned out $7.7 trillion to all kinds of people. But what I hear, you mentioned that, a lot of the defense often given is, well, most of them paid that money back. It was just these temporary loans. So it's not really going to harm them. It's not cost taxpayers anything. So what's your response well, my response is that it caused great harm because it prevented the reallocation uh, of the economy that was required for a, a real recovery. It kept zombies going, uh, and they're still going. And uh, what's now is happening is like you got a line of credit at the Fed. Zombies have a line of credit at the Fed. As you know, things are paid back, they're re-extended. And then we've had these other Fed things like QE1 and QE2, so that now the Fed is not simply the central allocator of credit in the economy because it doesn't just buy U.S. bonds, it buys all kinds of securities. So what it buys gets financing, what it doesn't buy doesn't get financing. That's what like Goss Bank used to do in the Soviet Union under central planning. They decided who got how much credit to to operate what, what kind of business. Now the Fed is our Goss Bank, uh, and it, it you know it flows down from there, and uh, the the restructuring I won't say has not happened at all because it has happened to some extent. You know there aren't as many people working in the housing industry as there used to be by far. Very little new housing is being built now, uh, but. <clears throat> The government's efforts, for example, to help people from being foreclosed have just delayed. Look, if you can't pay the mortgage, you can't pay the mortgage. You shouldn't have had a mortgage to begin with. You shouldn't have taken it, and the bank shouldn't have lent it to you. And the reason they did is the one Steve explained, that they didn't take any risk. I I tell you, it's within 24 hours. The time I sold my... Uh, you know, signed my mortgage last January. B of A didn't take more than 24 hours to resell that thing to Freddie Mac. Because I got a notice later. They're just front men. They collect all the fees for making the loan, and that's how the income they're earning now. And the same before. It was these secondary lenders propped up by the Treasury and the Greenspan put that allowed the, them to operate this way. But if you keep propping them up, if you keep pretending that several millions of people who are in homes they can't afford now can afford them, you're just delaying the day of reckoning. And the only way you'll prevent this from becoming a similar situation 
two, three, four years from now is by once again writing in and buying bad assets and propping up people who shouldn't have made these mistakes to begin with. Yes, sir. Um, at this point, if you were to bet, what do you do now? Do you, because they've announced that they're going to have low interest rates until about 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, are you trying to sell off the horrible you know, assets that you have? Or what? If you're what, a bank? If you're the Fed, what do you, what do, you do at this point? Uh, <clears throat> well, the Fed is... Um, the, Fed, the Fed's not really sure what it's trying to do, frankly, because uh, originally they had a kind of tentative exit strategy. One of it, part of it, was to run down these these uh, bad assets that they acquired from the banks. Uh, they've done a little bit of that, but then when things don't look good, they turn around and go back and retrace their steps. So they've sometimes run down their holdings like mortgage-backed securities, and then they've gone back and bought more uh, from institutions that were still in trouble. So it's not clear that's going to work for them. They can't ease out of it. Uh, and then at the same time, the government has run four years of trillion-dollar-plus deficits in their budget. And in order to keep from driving interest rates up, okay, the Fed has come in and basically bought a very large portion of their new issues of debt. And so now what you've got is, in effect, the Fed printing money that the federal government spends as part of its normal expenditure. This is like how you run a, the government of Brazil for you know, the 19th and 20th century, or Chile back in the days when the inflation rate was 50 or 100%. It's because the government can't collect enough taxes to cover its expenditures, so the central bank comes in and lends it money. But there's no loan there. It's lending to itself. The Fed is the government. There's, you know, there's all this institutional complication laid on top of it, but the Fed and the government are basically two arms of the same institution. So the government is pretending to get the money to spend by, by borrowing from the Fed, but that's borrowing from your left pocket to put it in your right. Is Obama's plan to force uh, banks to reconcile their, their loans, is that part of saving the Federal Reserve, being they have all those assets, anything that they can recoup financially to buffer that blow? Well, you know, it, the, supposedly the Dodd-Frank Act had among its purposes, the, the purpose of getting the government out of being in the position it found itself in in 2008. Okay? That is to say, in future, you won't be able to run to daddy okay? because we have now uh, an elaborate uh, procedure by which we can resolve an insolvent bank. And next time, if, if you get yourself into bankruptcy, uh, We'll trigger this procedure, and we'll walk you through a bankruptcy according to these rules. Okay? So we're not going to bail out the world again like we did before. The trouble is, it's all pie in the sky. There is nothing in the new law that requires them to use that procedure. And if not just banks, but you know any other kind of lenders get themselves in a terrible situation, of course they're going to demand bailouts. 
I mean, I guess if I were one of them, I'd do the same. You know, people are drowning. They grab any straw they can grab. So they, they've been taught that this is a straw that's going to constantly be made available to them. And this was seen all along. Uh, there's, a, there's a man named Prosser who's the head of the, the Philadelphia Fed. And uh, what Prosser said back in late 2009 says, this crisis, whether it's because of the Fed or the Treasury or Congress, has created a lot of new moral hazards. Once you have done this, even though it was in a severe crisis, the temptation will be for people to figure that in the next crisis, you'll do it again. And of course that'll be the temptation. And they will act on that temptation. They're acting on it now. They're now issuing bad loans to people for mortgages, people that, you know, you and I could walk in and look at those people's financial data and say, that's a crazy loan. These people can't repay this. You know, they don't have assets. They don't have reliable employment. They don't have enough income, blah, blah, blah. See, and it wasn't too long ago in the past that if you wanted a mortgage, you had to put 20% down. That was just the basic rule, 20% down. Right? So the bank had something to work with there. If you if you were an unreliable lender, they'd foreclose on you, and they, they had something, you know. They weren't going to get wiped out if house values fell by 2%. But now, there have been so many bad loans, which means no down payment money, no collateral, no income by borrowers, and so forth, that this is just a kind of welfare. It's not really a financial industry anymore. It's a glorified welfare industry. And, you know, lest you think I'm accusing poor people who got into this situation, let me very quickly add that it wasn't the poor people that brought these policies into being. It was the other people involved in them, the banks, the originators, the Fannie and Freddie crowd, the whole, these are the guys, poor people don't make policy, for Christ's sake. They're an excuse for policies made to serve the interests of people who are anything but poor. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you know, these securities they have uh, are, consists of a lot of notes in which people have agreed to make payments over a certain period of time. Well, in some cases, they, they complete those payments. And so the, the securities expire. They've been paid back. Okay? Uh, so that's the end of it. Just like when you pay off your mortgage. That's the end of your mortgage. It's canceled at that point. So uh, there's a, a very staggered stream of income associated with a lot of these mortgage-related loans. But as the money is repaid, uh, the, the assets are canceled or marked down in some way to lower values. And so they, they could back out. The Fed could back out if it didn't buy any more. But it, it has, uh, has, has bought more. Okay, I, maybe we should bring, uh, where's Alex here? Maybe we should bring uh, Steve back here so you can ask him questions too because we'll, we'll, bo we'll both be available here. I would just add one quick thing to that last discussion about the Fed, uh, which is that uh, the, the problem the Fed has is it, it bought those mortgage-backed securities for a certain price. 
it, to the extent it can't sell them at that price, that means it leaves a net plus in bank reserves, right? So when the Fed buys mortgage-backed securities for $2 billion, it adds $2 billion in reserves. If when it goes to try to sell them off, right, to get them off the Fed's balance sheet, it can only sell it for a billion, there's a billion dollars difference there that's still left sitting in bank reserves. So if the Fed thinks it can take out all the reserves it put in, it must believe <laughs> that it can sell those mortgage-backed securities for the same price it paid. That is highly unlikely, right? Yeah. And, pro and so whatever the result is of it trying to unwind what it did, it's, it's likely to leave a, a still. It can't get rid of everything it put in. And more generally, I think, you know, the, between the Fed and Congress and everyone else, all these moves that were made in response to a crisis have, you know, pick your metaphor, boxed us into, you know, painted ourselves into a corner, right? You know, boxed us in, whatever you want to use. There's no good option here. There's just no good option. And, and that's, you know, that, that's the scary part. Yes, sir. I had a question. Um, how do we say to our creditors? And then um, how does it change the culture of uh, environment, I guess? Say, say the first part again. How do we? Um, how do we stay true to our creditors? How do you stay true to your creditors? Uh, as the U.S., borrow yeah. from other countries. And then how, like, how does that affect our culture, uh, us being younger entrepreneurs going forward mm -hmm. in this economy? Well, you know, if you're, if you're the U.S. government, is that what you're thinking about, the borrowing from abroad? Uh, you know, a very large part of the recent sale of bonds by the U.S. government has been to foreigners. Not, not, not all. And then recently, of course, the Fed, as I say, the Fed has bought it, so nobody bought it. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's... I think it's fairly clear at this point that the, the size of the government debt um, is, if not already, it will soon be in the area where it, it can't possibly repay it. That is, there's no plausible scenario in which uh, the U.S. government pays back all, all the lenders as it's supposed to. And so governments in that position always default in some way. Now, uh, you can default just outright. You can say, we promised to pay you, but we're not going to. We're, we're broke. Okay? Governments have done that on many occasions. Uh, I don't think that's what the U.S. government will do. A much more likely default will be that they'll, they'll default through inflation. That is, the Fed will create whatever amount of money is required to get the banks finally lending it. And, uh, and, and if that doesn't work, you know, they don't have to just do the Fed. In the Civil War, there was no Fed, so they just printed the money. Congress authorized greenbacks with U.S. notes, they were officially called. And these pieces of paper currency you had to accept because they passed a law, the Legal Tender Act, that said you got to take them for, for all debts, uh, Private, not all debts public, you still had to pay your tariff bill in gold <laughs> to the government. But most debts had to be, you know, if somebody owed you dollars, you had to accept greenbacks. And then the government just printed these things up. They, they printed $450 million, which is at that time a lot of money. Uh, and they could do that again. There's nothing to stop the Congress from authorizing printing money in any way, shape, or form. They like to do it through the Fed because historically people didn't understand the Fed. It was this, this mysterious thing. It was this box. And so a lot of people didn't understand that the Fed 
you know, was actually an arm of the, the government, which was in some cases financing it outright. Uh, although in wartime, it's hard to miss that that's what was going on. But, but uh, you see, th that's not going to fool anybody now, besides the fact that all of us uh, appreciate more about the Fed than people used to. Uh, the, the Chinese, you know, <laughs> who, who own over a trillion dollars worth of the public debt, they understand everything. So what they're trying to do, uh, they're trying to put pressure on the U.S. government to create as little inflation as possible, <laughs> you know, so that their holdings of U.S. government securities don't fall in real value as a result of U.S. inflation. But ultimately, I suspect that it will be through inflation that the U.S. government will effectively default. Because if you look, look ahead, say, uh, the U.S. government is only getting itself deeper and deeper in the direction of default every year. If you add a trillion dollars to the debt every year, <laughs> you're not fixing that problem. <laughs> and that's what they're doing. Now, they keep saying, oh, well, you know, this is going to get better. Always the year after next, it's going to get better. And they've been saying that now for four years. And it's not getting better because the spending isn't restrained. And the, and the debt-to-GDP ratio is now over 100%. Not a lot over, but over. And that used to be the place where we said of other countries, you know, you've got a big problem. So. Well, that includes the, the, the fake debt to the Social Security Trust Fund. And so, you know, if you just look at the publicly held debt, uh, it's about 60% uh, plus and rising pretty fast now. Yes, sir? Uh, back to your, when you're talking about Turkey Right. Yes. They might. Yes, I think it's completely possible. Uh, you know, China has such a different setup uh, all around. Their whole financing system uh, still heavily directed by state authorities, uh, and uh, uh, so it's it's hard to know. We've never seen China in this situation. They've never been where they could be in this situation before. But it's obvious that they they have created a huge construction boom. Uh, real estate values ran up very greatly in China, uh, and a lot of people made tremendous amount of money. Okay? Now, I think it's fair to assume that a lot of those people who made these investments are very cozy with the Communist Party. That, that's how they got the financing to begin with. So, you know, what that's going to mean when real estate values start to fall and all the assets related to real estate values start to come down too. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's not going to be good for them. I don't know how they're going to react to it or you know, how, how bad their situation really is. It's very hard to know about China because their numbers are, you know, you've got to really almost devote your life to have any clue about what their numbers mean. And that the banking and finance system is just so different. It's hard to know exactly what the source of that construction boom is and how it relates to the traffic lights problem, right? I mean, that's, that's the complicated thing. Yeah. 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 It seems like the general philosophy right now is it's not completely broken, so we just keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. How would you advocate for solution uh, as far as fiscal policy and monetary policy just um, how to adjust that to something more salvageable or what would be the consequence of not changing? 
uh, well, what can't be done won't be done. Okay? That's, that's one thing everybody should understand. So the, the government has made promises about how many pensions it's going to pay and how much Medicare it's going to provide and to whom and so forth. It can't do that. It's not going to happen. So <clears throat> what, will, what will have to happen is that they'll have to back away somehow. And what I expect them to do is to back away in small bites. Okay? They're not going to just throw up their hands and say, you know, we snookered you all. We're very sorry, but you're screwed. Okay? That's not how government works. <laughs> They're going to keep making these little changes. They're going to make more Social Security pensions taxable. They're going to raise the age of retirement. They're going to change the rules for who's eligible for what kind of Medicare. And, you know, they'll eat into what they've promised people until they get closer to what they can actually pay for. Uh, so that is my, that, that's the expectation I have most confidently. That, uh, a lot of my friends are sort of expecting some apocalypse, you know. Uh, I'm really not. Uh, because uh, apocalypses are pretty rare in economic life. You know, we, we don't see a lot of those. And uh, in addition to that, the U.S. economy and a lot of other economies in the world have many strengths. See? If you actually re removed a, a substantial amount of the burdens now being borne by entrepreneurs in the form of taxes and regulations, you could have a wealth creation like the world has never seen. So, you know, there's a lot of potential left in this system and even in other systems, you know. Not every Turk is an idiot. Uh, there's potential in Turkey. There's, you know, heaven help us, there may even be potential somewhere buried deep in Greece <laughs> if, you know, they would change their setup to allow that potential to be expressed creatively. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I don't expect apocalypse, but frankly, I think the way the government has created the current situation almost obliges it to do things that are going to cripple the economic process. And so I kind of bet on stagnation, you know, not great amounts of growth in the foreseeable future. Maybe someday after I'm dead and you all are thriving, uh, things will get much, much better. But I don't expect to live that long myself. I think I, just on the monetary side, you know, one of the most amazing things that's happened in the last couple of years on the good side, I think, is the attention, that, a critical attention that's been paid to the Fed. I think, you know, Bob kind of hinted at it before, but, you know, I've been studying central banking and the Fed for over 25 years. And, and if you five years ago said to me, you know, in, by 2000, whatever, 11, 12, um, uh, pe young people at Ron Paul campaign events would be chanting, end the Fed, right? And that, that there would be a serious possibility of an audit the Fed bill passing Congress. By the way, I'm not sure how much good that will really do. Can't hurt, but just symbolically, right? That, that if you told me anything, I would have said you're crazy, right? So I think there's this, so one of the things on the monetary side is this recognition, no one's going to get fooled anymore, you know, it, by, by what the, by the, by the Fed, people thinking the Fed is something magic and mysterious. Um, and, and, you know, like, like the, you know, Bernanke looks increasingly like, uh, don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain, right? That, that he, you know, he's just another guy, all right? So I think all of that is probably a good thing. The question, of course, is what 
comes of that, right? And, and I, I don't know what comes of that. Um, I, the Fed has immense institutional inertia. Uh, it would take something, you know, if, if you're someone like me who's, you know, spoken out about the need to get rid of the Fed, people in the kind of mainstream journalism world immediately think you're a crank or a fool or, or whatever. Um, but not as much as they used to, <laughs> right? People are taking it with a little bit more seriousness. And, and so maybe down the road, you know, that's a possibility. And I think, again, the more that um, we see that technology and the degree to which we can innovate provides us with alternative monetary instruments. I mean, PayPal and, and all that still rely on the other system, but they, people are more used to paying for things in new and different ways, right? So, I mean, those are all, I think, to some degree, so to some degree positive signs. But whether they're going to be enough to overcome massive institutional inertia, I don't know. But at least people are aware. And I would just echo the last thing Bob said, which is my own sense is that we're headed for sort of maybe the worst case scenario is, is Japan of the 90s, kind of 1%, you know, flatline. But if not that, certainly a future that if it's better than the present, won't be nearly as better as it would have been had we not done all this nonsense, right? And you've gone back, you know, however far you want to go back. So it's, it's a, to use an analogy I've used a couple times since I've been here, we, we were putting weights on Michael Phelps, right? Still a pretty good swimmer, okay? And he's still going to do all right. Um, but boy, not as good as he would be if we just unshackle him. Uh, if the Fed is ended, what could we replace it with? I mean, certainly we can't put the monetary powers under the government. <laughs> well, that's, you're, you're, you're halfway to the right answer. Um, I think it goes back to the question from earlier, which is, do we, I mean, why is there an it we need to replace it with, right? Which is uh, that we have plenty of evidence historically, though from mostly from other places than the United States, so to some degree the U.S., that banks are perfectly capable under the right institutional rules of producing, uh, what, you know, currency and checkable deposits uh, competitively on their own, presumably redeemable in some outside asset, some commodity that people value, uh, and that, that that kind of system, again, if the rules are right, will not produce major fluctuations of the sort that we've seen. The other advantage of such a system is it takes away the printing press from governments. It forces them to live within their means. That is, if they want to spend money, either someone's got to voluntarily lend it to them or they've got to raise taxes or you know, sell off an asset to pay for it. So you know, get, getting the printing press out of the hands of government is... Uh, is, is, is really important. Um, what, again, how you get there is a different question and whether you can, you know, whether, I think many people are, you know, still convinced that somehow the Fed keeps a lid on some horrible, terrible thing that would happen if we didn't have it. But I think history's not on their side. If you look at the history carefully, um, all, all of the things that went wrong before the Fed in the United States were not the result of, of, uh, of sort of market failure in the sense that we usually think about it but of bad rules and, and other government interventions, that, a couple of which we've mentioned, that, that made those systems dysfunctional. And places like Canada and Scotland and others that had the right kinds of rules in place just simply didn't see these problems. And, and competitive banking worked and worked pretty well there. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.